Text today is Ruth 1, verses 1 through 22. It's on page 278, I believe, of the Bibles in the seats. I forgot to double check that. So last week we completed the book of Judges. This week we began a new book, Ruth. And it is the next one in the canon. So we're going to read all of the first chapter on page 278. <clears throat> now it came about in the days when the judges governed that there was a famine in the land. And a certain man of Bethlehem and Judah went to sojourn in the land of Moab with his wife and his two sons. The name of the man was Elimelech, and the name of his wife, Naomi, and the names of his two sons were Malo and Chilion, Ephraites of Bethlehem and Judah. Now they entered the land of Moab and remained there. Then Elimelech, Naomi's husband, died, and she was left with her two sons. They took for themselves Moabite women as wives. The name of the one was Orpah, and the name of the other, Ruth. And they lived there about ten years. Then both Malon and Chilion died, also died, and the, women was, and the woman was bereft of her two children and her husband. Then she arose with her daughters-in-law that she might return to the land of Moab, from the land of Moab, excuse me, for she had heard in the land of Moab that the Lord had visited his people in giving them food. So she departed from the place where she was and her two daughters-in-law with her. And they went on the way to return to the land of Judah. And Naomi said to her two daughters-in-law, Go return each of you to her mother's house. May the Lord deal kindly with you as you have dealt with me, with the dead and with me. May the Lord grant that you may find rest, each in the house of her husband. Then she kissed them, and they lifted up their voices and wept. And they said to her, No, but we will surely return with you to your people. But Naomi said, Return, my daughters. Why should you go with me? Have I yet sons in my womb that they may be your husbands? Return, my daughters. Go, for I am too old to have a husband. If I said I have hope, if I should even have a husband tonight and also bear sons, would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you therefore refrain from marrying? No, my daughters, for it is harder for me than for you, for the hand of the Lord has gone forth against me. And they lifted up their voices and wept again. And Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but Ruth clung to her. Then she said, Behold, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and her gods. Return after your sister-in-law. But Ruth said, Do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Your people will be my people, and your God my God. Where you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me, and worse, if anything but death parts you and me. When she saw that she was determined to go with her, she said no more to her. So they both went until they came to Bethlehem. And when they had come to Bethlehem, all the city was stirred because of them. And the women said, Is this Naomi? She said to them, Do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara, for the Almighty has dealt very bitterly with me. I went out full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. Why do you call me Naomi, since the Lord has witnessed against me and the Almighty has afflicted me? So Naomi returned, and with her Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law, who returned from the land of Moab, and they came to Bethlehem at the beginning of the barley harvest. Let's pray. Lord God, we ask for your guidance once again as we begin the book of Ruth. 
May this story lead us to your throne to worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray that through it we see the magnificence of Jesus Christ. May us make us receptive to the truth found in these scriptures. Bless our gathering with your presence. May it be glorifying to you, faithful to the text, and helpful for your people. Send your spirit to work in us now. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we saw in the very first verse here, we are still in the time frame of the judges. This is the time when the judges ruled. And if this story of Ruth and Naomi and Boaz, if if you take it and if it were placed in the book of Judges, it would easily stand out as the best and brightest story. It would be like a diamond set on black velvet if it was in the book of Judges. But it is a standalone book, and it is in the general chronological order with the Judges that precedes it, the book of Judges that precedes it, and the books of Samuel, Kings, and Chronicles that follow right after it. And it makes sense for it to be here for more than just chronological reasons. It is in this chronological order, and that makes sense, but it fits thematically as well. The whole book of Judges is there showing generation after generation of absolute moral and religious chaos that dominated Israel for hundreds of years after the conquest of the Promised Land. The sad saga just cries out for a good king. And then after Ruth, the books after Ruth show us the establishment of the monarchy. When they got a king, and it gives us the history of those kings that ruled Israel and Judah. And then Ruth there is between. It is the connection between those two eras of the judges and the monarchy. It connects the two. It is, of course, named after its primary character, a Moabite woman named Ruth. And the way it connects us to the monarchy as you probably already know, is that she was the great-grandmother of King David. She was the mother of Obed, who bore Jesse, who bore David. So she's David's great-grandmother. This book tells the story of how a Moabite came to be included in Israel as a primogenitor of not only David, but of Jesus Christ himself. And she is included in the lineage of Jesus Christ. It is a message of hope, and loyalty, and friendship, and faithfulness, the sovereignty of God, is quite a stark contrast to the book of Judges that we just completed. That's why I said last week it's sort of a palate cleanser after going through 21 chapters of Judges. So that is why Ruth is here. That's why it makes sense for us to cover it right now. The whole story plays out relatively quickly. It's over in four manageable chapters. They're not excessively long, so We might even get some shorter sermons in here. Probably not. Uh, No promises. Also, just to give you a timestamp of where we are in history, we're probably right around somewhere in the ballpark of 1,100 years before Christ, before the Incarnation. So we're in the later period of the Judges, at least the second half of the period of the Judges. We're about 100 years or so before King Saul, just about three generations or so before King Saul. So I want to remind you by, or begin by reminding you of that final verse that we we finished, the very last chapter of the book of Judges, the final verse of chapter 21, it said, in those days there was no king in Israel, everyone did what was right in his own eyes. And we heard that familiar refrain, there's no king, there's no king, look what's going on, there's no king. Well, we go forward a singular verse to the very first verse of the next book, and we're introduced to Elimelech. 
It's a very anglicized way of saying it, but Elimelech. And his very name means, my God is king. El, God, Eli, my God, Melech, king. Elimelech, my God is king. And in the first five verses here, we are introduced to him and his family, and we're, even, uh, we're given a quick background to this whole story. He was from Bethlehem, but due to a famine in Israel, he left his homeland. He went with his wife, his two sons, to go live in Moab, which normally would not be ideal. Moab is southeast of the Dead Sea. So if you're looking at the map of Israel, it's kind of down in the bottom right corner. Southeast of the Dead Sea. It's obviously on the east side of the Jordan. It's outside of Canaan. And remember that Moab, as a nation, originated from the incestuous relationship between Lot and his daughters. From that conceived Ammon and Moab, from those two daughters. We read about that at the end of Genesis 19. So it's an ugly, ugly start to the nation. But that does mean that they are distant relatives of Israel. But that relationship is far enough in the past that their shared lineage was no ongoing cause of unity or peace between the two countries. They're not really pals. In fact, Eglon, that fat Moabite king that we read about in Judges 3 that oppressed Israel, he was obviously from Moab, he was sometime near this period. And we read about that. And that was just the most recent in a long line of disputes between Israel and Moab. It was, remember, Moabite women who were used to intentionally draw Israel away from Yahweh into idolatry when they were still wandering in the wilderness. They deliberately used Moabite women to entice them in their lust and use them to draw them away from true worship. And it was Ammon and Moab together that hired Balaam to come curse Israel instead of meeting them with food and water as they're coming up out of Egypt. They didn't meet them as their distant relatives, as their, their cousins, of, if you will. They, they hired Balaam to come curse them. And as a result of that particular conflict, God forbids Moabites in Deuteronomy 23 from entering the assembly of the Lord for 10 generations from that point. 10 generations down, he says, no Moabite can enter the assembly of the Lord. So Israel and Moab have a history together, and it, it ain't good. It's, a, it's been contentious. Therefore, sojourning in the land of Moab as an Israelite would be, like I said, less than ideal under normal circumstances. I did notice a lot of commentators wanting to criticize Elimelech as if he's you know, running from his problems, if he's, he's in disobedience going to Moab or abandoning his inheritance in the promised land. And honestly, I, I, just, I don't see any reason for that sort of understanding of the situation that we're covering. He was simply going to where the food was to keep his family alive. And that was a fairly typical response to famines in the promised land by the patriarchs as well. We see multiple other patriarchs do that same thing. It was always meant to be temporary. He's not moving to Moab. He's going there until he can come back. I also think of how God commanded Joseph and Mary to flee temporarily to Egypt to preserve the, the life of their little family when Herod was trying to put Jesus Christ to death. He was trying to kill Jesus as a child, and they fled. And likewise, all of Israel went down to Egypt to escape a famine during the time of Jacob when Joseph was made second in command under Pharaoh. Of course, they did get stuck there a few hundred years, but God in his sovereignty 
did that on purpose. He was bringing about a, a very specific result to bring about the conquest of the present of the of the promised land, to bring judgment on the Canaanites, to bring them up out of slavery, to typify all of salvation through that entire process. I mean, that that was very deliberate history on God's part. And I would say something similar is clearly happening here as well. Maybe not on the same scale, but Ruth is being brought in. She's being brought into Israel. A Gentile, a Moabite becomes a matriarch of Israel's royal line, and it is worthy of its own story. And don't worry, by this time, Ruth would have been outside of that 10-generation window mentioned in Deuteronomy 23. She would have been freely allowed to assemble uh, with with the people to worship the Lord. Now, the other issue to address is that by moving to Moabite, uh, Moab with his sons, Malon and Chilon, the expected happens. They both take Moabite wives. That's somewhat to be expected, I would think. And again, the question arises, was this wrong? Is this another failure? Well, Moabites were not technically Canaanites. The Israelites were forbidden from marrying with the, the nations of the Canaanites. And, and Moab is not included in the, the list of nations that God restricts Israel from intermarrying with. But their devotion was not to Yahweh. This was not a nation of Yahweh worshipers. They worship a false demonic god, one of the worst false demonic gods, Chemosh, which was more or less just another manifestation of Molech. Molech and Chemosh are are basically the, the, the same false god. They're both false gods infamously associated with child sacrifice, and Ammon and Moab worship them together. And that would make marrying a Moabite a potential disaster. The false, that false worship would typically restrict a marriage with them. Uh, the Israelites shouldn't typically feel free to marry them just because they're technically not on this list that says don't marry with them. Because it's the same basic reason that Israel was not supposed to marry Canaanites. These are false pagan nations worshiping a false god. However, foreigners could be brought into Israel. There was a way for this to happen. And Refusing to abandon their false gods would be an obvious deal breaker to that sort of scenario, especially before any marriage with a foreigner. So it is presumed fairly that Ruth and Orpah, the wives of Elimelech's two sons, it is fairly presumed that they were educated on and converted to the worship of Yahweh. And I think there's also evidence in this chapter that we see that, that, that justifies that sort of presumption because Orpah, when she returns to Moab, she is said to go back to her gods. Well, she is going back to her gods. That means she must have left them off at some point, which means she would have been worshiping Yahweh with her family that she married into. It was, there wasn't a dual religion sort of thing going on with, within Elimelech's family. And Ruth herself uses the covenantal name of Yahweh in proper context, in the proper way, as if it's simply part of her normal understanding and practice. So again, I I don't think there's condemnation necessary here for these two marriages. I think Orpah and Ruth had adopted Yahwehism, and they had essentially agreed to become Jews, part of the Israelite community, even though they're not in Israel. However, after some undisclosed time in Moab, after they're over here, they've got this little family established, Elimelech dies, and then after him, 
both of his sons die as well. We're not given any details to this, but now, after 10 years in Moab, Naomi's family is just her and her two daughter-in-laws, daughters-in-law, and all three of them are widows. After hearing that the famine was over in Israel, the text tells us the Lord visited Israel, meaning he, he brought food to them, he, he eased their suffering, Naomi makes the easy decision to move back home with Ruth and Orpah. But then once they're on their way, it seems that they started this journey, once they're on their way, she appeals to them both to return to their own homeland of Moab instead of going with her back to Israel, a land that really they had only ever heard of from their husbands and their in-laws. They'd never been there. They're Moabites. They've never been to Israel. The men that united these three women were dead and gone. Thus, in Naomi's mind, there is seemingly little reason for them to stay together like this, for her daughters to, to have to be burdened with her. She wished them God's faithful loving kindness, his said loving kindness, which is what she says they have shown to her. She appreciates very much their love to her, her their devotion, but she urged them, go seek new husbands. Go find rest in the home, in the house of a new husband. And she says it, but neither Orpah nor Ruth agree. They both say, no, no, we're going to go with you. But then Naomi insists all the more. She says, come on, be reasonable. I've got no more sons for you to marry. She's, she's referencing Levite marriage. Like if one son dies, then uh, the brother would marry. He's like, I've got no more sons for you to marry. Uh, I'm no spring chicken. I'm old. I'm not getting married don't have hope in me. Even if I got married today, uh, you couldn't just sit around waiting until I had another son and marry him. I mean, come on. Let me bear this burden alone, is essentially what she's saying. The Lord has dealt harshly with me, is the way she sort of characterizes it. She's saying to them, look, you are still young. Go home. Avoid this state of affairs that I'm in. I'm an old widow. You're young widows. That can be fixed. And it's really a, a pretty sad scene. They, they weep bitterly together and they embrace each other and they all clearly have a genuine care for one another in this devastated little family that they have it's been devastated by the death of all the men so Orpah uh, at last concedes she listens to her mother-in-law she kisses her one last time in farewell she accepts Naomi's advice and she returns home as she was told and she too, does tend to receive some criticism for this. But to be fair, she, she, she's not in the wrong. She's not sinning by doing this. She, she was doing what she was told. Naomi urged her to do it. She even protested with Ruth when Naomi initially brought it up and, and she had to be talked into leaving. She wasn't eager to do so. She wasn't looking for an opportunity to abandon Naomi. She's not in the wrong. She, she seemingly just being logical and reasonable at the behest of her older, wiser mother-in-law. But at the same time, this is why she's a forgettable character. The only reason Orpah's name is known is because of her association with Ruth and Ruth's honorable actions. In fact, if I asked you last week, if I said, do you know the name of Ruth's sister-in-law? Would you have known that? I'm guessing not. I don't know that I even would have known that. I think I might have remembered that it sounded like Oprah, but it's not Oprah. 
I don't know. I don't know if anybody would know that just off the top of their head. Oh, like, oh yeah, Orpa. We know all about Orpa. No, the truth is, honestly, we wouldn't know any of the names in this chapter were it not for Ruth. We wouldn't know about Elimelech, except that his daughter-in-law was Ruth. We wouldn't know about Naomi. So I'm not criticizing Orpah per se, but she clearly serves as a foil to Ruth and Ruth's action. Orpah's response makes Ruth's loyalty more noticeable. Because Ruth still refused Naomi's call for her to leave. After insisting twice, she still refuses Naomi's call to leave. The text tells us in verse 14 that even after Orpah left, Ruth clung to her. She was holding on to Naomi, both figuratively and literally. She's sending a message. I don't know if she's around her leg or around her waist, but she's holding on to Naomi. And as you may suspect, that, that is going to be the singular focus of the chapter today. This part is the part that is worth dwelling on. This is what sets the rest of the story in motion. And maybe you ask, why is, such, why is that such a big deal? I'm not really sure if there's a better way to say it other than Ruth's actions here are outstanding. I'll put it simply like that. Naomi is offering her freedom. She's offering to free her of any future obligation to her, an old helpless widow. Naomi, too, is to be commended. She's being selfless for Ruth's sake. She urges her to do what's in her best interest instead of her own best interest. Ruth, do what makes sense for you. Don't do what you think makes sense for me. Don't worry about me. Come on. Ruth could go back. She could go find security in her father's house until she remarried. But she sacrifices to remain loyal to Naomi. They're just a couple of helpless widows together. But Ruth would have been more able-bodied than Naomi, obviously. Naomi is undoubtedly needier than Ruth would have been. Ruth is still young enough to, to be active or to get remarried. So by staying with Naomi, Ruth is fettering herself to her mother-in-law and her needs. She's taking on a burden. She's taking on her mother-in-law into her care as a continuous burden because a childless widow is a precarious position to be in, especially in ancient Israel. Widows like her were reliant on the community to help. It was to be expected. They, they couldn't just go out, find jobs, provide for themselves. And, and this is why special care for widows was prescribed in the Mosaic Law. Multiple times. And that is also why James tell us, tells us, pure and undefiled religion in the sight of our God and Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their distress and to keep oneself unstained by the world. Taking care of the helpless. Widows are in that category, especially an older widow. So was Israel called to care for Naomi? Yeah, yes, of course. Of course they were. That was indeed the spirit of the law, to love their neighbors as themselves. And it's, it's said explicitly. But don't forget... Where are we in history? We are in the time of the judges, a time of moral and religious relativism leading to moral and religious chaos where everyone is just doing what is right in their own eyes. How much hope did Naomi really have of finding support in Israel in the chaotic state that that nation was in? After reading those 21 
chapters, uh, uh, judges, would you expect to go into Israel and find functioning social services for older, helpless widows? I mean, look what happened at Gibeah when a Levite expected Israel to do their simple duty to care for a fellow traveler in their city, something that was expected in their culture. They knew to take care of widows. They knew to take care of travelers. Look what happened to him. What's going to happen to Naomi? And we'll even see in the next chapter, there's a, there's a subtle hint at this, that Boaz, when he enters the picture, he takes precautious measures to protect Ruth because he knew that she wouldn't be safe either. Even as a younger widow, he knew she was vulnerable. She could easily be taken advantage of, and he takes some steps. We'll call that out when we, when we see it next week. And Naomi knew all this. She knew it. She knew the burden that she was going to be to Ruth if Ruth, Ruth continues on. And she loved her enough to want the best for her in spite of her own well-being. So, Ruth had to fight to be loyal. She had to cling to her. Naomi gave her legitimate reasons to go home. Things that made sense. She was trying to get Ruth to leave for her own good. It, really, it reminds me of this scene in White Fang. You know that novel by Jack London? They made a movie of it that I watched as a kid. I'm not sure how faithful it is to the book. I don't think it follows the book too closely. But... I was really, there's a scene in it, and then I, was, I was too young to really understand it. I was too immature when I was a kid, and that's maybe why I remember it so vividly. But there's this main character, his name's Jack. He, t- he tames a wolf, and uh, this wolf was formerly used for dog fighting, and, and they become very close. You know, it's a story about a, this, this guy and his dog, and they're close. But then some, situa- some situation arises, arises where uh, he has to leave, he has to go home, or something like that, and, and he needs the dog to go back to the wild. They, you know, they have to break off their partnership. The dog has to go back to the wild. He can't stay there and take care of him any, anymore. So you know, he tries to get the dog to leave, you know, take him off the leash, whatever, go back into the woods and live as a wolf. I don't know. Obviously, the dog doesn't understand this. So for his own good, Jack tries to drive him away. He yells at him and he throws sticks at him and, and, he, and this just confuses the dog because, you know, why is this owner that I love? Why does, I don't want to stray from this owner. But Jack is, of course, he, he thinks he's doing this for the dog's own good, right? And I saw that as a kid and I was so confused by it. I was like, why is he being mean to the dog? <laughs> now, it's not exactly the same scenario, but Naomi sort of tries that tactic with Ruth. Like, come on, get out of here. Go, go back to your own land. I I'm, I'm, can't be here and take care of you. you know, and it simply doesn't work. It doesn't work. Ruth insists on being Naomi's security since Naomi has no other family left. Ruth becomes her family. Or at least she becomes her faint hope of being attached to a family again in the future. Ruth becomes her means to be fed, to be cared for, to be looked after. And Ruth binds herself to Naomi, not as a trial run, not as like, hey, I'll go with you and, uh, you know, let's see if we can make this work. Let's, let's, uh, let's take a, a shot at it. Ruth binds herself by an oath. She calls down a curse upon herself if she abandons Naomi. She does it in the name of God. Her words in verses 16 and 17 are worthy of being read again. She said, do not urge me to leave you or turn back from following you. For where you go, I will go. And where you lodge, I will lodge. Where you're going to go, I'm going to be there right beside you. Your people will be my people. And your God, my God. 
Where you die, I will die, and there I will be buried. Thus may the Lord do to me and worse, if anything, but death parts you from me. And she says, Lord there, that's Yahweh. She says Yahweh's name. She knows who he is. And she says, I'm doing this for the rest of my life. Even after you die, I'm going to stay there. I'm going to be, I'm adopting everything about you. And not only does she say this, but she, she swears that oath in the name of Yahweh, like I said. She exhibits faith in the one true and living God and takes him as her own God. Or rather, displays that she has already taken him as her God and will not be departing from him either. When she married into Elimelech's family, she became a Yahweh worshiper. And she's proving that was genuine. I wasn't just saying that because I wanted a husband. I'm worshiping him. I'm, call, I'm calling him to call, bring a curse on me if I don't do what I say. And she's saying that because she believes he is real. She doesn't want to go back to her old gods. She doesn't want paganism. Naomi was to Ruth a pathway of continued association with Yahweh. She was a Moabite. They didn't worship Yahweh. She wasn't naturally part of the covenant people. She can't claim her bloodline of, hey, I, I am owed this inheritance because of who I am. To go back to her land was to go back to her gods, and Moabite gods required child sacrifice. They were demonic. They are demonic. She had already lost her husband, and if she managed to get married again to some dude from Moab, she could potentially have her child taken from her and burnt as a sacrifice. That's a legit possibility. She's reasonable enough to know that's not a true God. That's not a God worth worshiping. Who would want to go back to a country like that, to a people that did that sort of thing? Now, that's not to say that Ruth was just using Naomi as a means to an end. She genuinely loved her. And it seems she genuinely loved Yahweh. So I say again, Ruth's actions are outstanding. She's practicing has said. Maybe a word that you've heard, maybe not. It comes up in a lot of Bible studies. <clears throat> is a Hebrew word that is used frequently to describe God's covenantal faithfulness and his loving kindness. In fact, it's often translated as faithfulness or loving kindness. If you see those words in scripture and it's speaking of, of God's loving kindness, it's, it's very likely that it is hased. And this is our obvious point to meditate on for worship. It's the obvious point to apply to herself for practice. It, it is our point of application. Naomi didn't bring anything material to the table to appeal to Ruth, to make her want to stick around. She didn't have some riches, some inheritance, and Ruth is like, ooh, I need to keep my hands on this. Naomi brings nothing to the table. Ruth simply loves her. There's nothing to offer her. Ruth just loves her. And this is Christ-like love. This typifies Christ's love for his church. Now don't feel weird about a woman typifying Christ, right? Even a building can typify Christ. That's what the temple does. A boat can typify Christ. That's what the ark does. Ruth typifies Christ's faithful, loving kindness. She typifies his willingness to sacrifice for the sake of those that he loves. We as the church bring nothing to appeal to Jesus. 
to make him want to keep us around, to make him approve of us as his bride. He simply loves us. He's determined to love us. We give him ample reason not to love us, in fact. We make a convincing argument that we are not worthy. But we cannot drive him away. He clings tightly to his bride in spite of our insistence we're not worthy. He wouldn't be wrong to do so in principle. He wouldn't be wrong to abandon us in principle. It it would seemingly be the logical and reasonable thing to do. Not be married to a woman that constantly cheats on you. Which is what the bride of Christ does to Jesus and their failures and their sins repeatedly. But we are not chosen as his bride because of the good that we would do or because of what we could bring to the table or because of this list of faithfulness or our our adherence to sacraments or our religious resume. Nothing. We weren't a catch for Jesus. Ooh, look what Jesus got for himself. The best of the best out of the world. Look at that. Lucky guy. No. (laughs) We weren't chosen because of what goodness lies within us. We were chosen to have goodness imputed to us and to be worked in us through faith. His love made it so. His covenant faithfulness kept it so. Our gradual being made into his image is the result of him clinging to us when we daily bring to him sin that legally justifies his abandoning of us. And each day Christ says, no, I will keep my spirit working in you. You will not be taken from my hand. Each day he lifts those sins off of our shoulders, places them on his own. Each day he exchanges our own filthy garments and gives us his own white robes to cover our shame. His mercies are new every morning. When our hearts are far from him, when we are prone to wander, when we want to turn back to our old gods, Jesus still clings to us. He has permanently unified himself with his bride. And he hates divorce. We cannot be separated. When we were put together, he says, no, that wasn't a trial run. That wasn't, let's see if we can make this work. I took you as my bride, knowing what you were, knowing what you would do, and you're not going to be taken from me. We're united, and he will not be dragged back before idols. He will not allow us to serve two masters. He will keep us from wandering out of his sheepfold. When we try, he will bring us back. Possibly by the rod, possibly by picking us up and carrying him, carrying us in his arms close to his bosom as it's described in Lamentations. So we worship Jesus Christ for this said, for this faithful, loving kindness shown to us by grace alone. And we apply it the same way that Ruth did. We love sacrificially. We insist on loving others. Even when they give us ample reason to abandon them. When they they insist through their actions that they have not earned our love or that 
division is the reasonable action here. We insist on loving them. We are determined to love them. We protect the unity of our church by clinging to one another, in, even when we inadvertently offend, and when our personal, personality differences are glaring, when it maybe doesn't make a whole lot of sense, we love each other to cover a multitude of sins. We stay with our spouses because we will not be dissuaded from loving them. We remain united, even when it seems on the surface to not be the best case scenario, maybe. But obedience is always the best case scenario. It might not be the easy way out. It might not be the quickest way away from suffering. But obedience is always the best case scenario. Remaining faithful, even through difficulty, is always worth it. Love towards others is loyalty to God. Maintaining that love, when it is to our advantage to abandon it, is the essence of hesed. It is to be Christ-like. This is when it matters the most. When it is hard. When it is disadvantage, a disadvantage to do it. Ruth stayed faithful to her loved one right when that door was kicked open for her to leave. She had a long road ahead of her, both literally and figuratively. They're literally walking back to Israel. She's going to this strange, unfamiliar home. She would have this older woman to care for for the rest of her life. And Naomi offered a way out right then. Like, think about, think about what you're burdening yourself with. Don't do it. Just go back. She, she offered the opportunity to Ruth. She didn't, Ruth didn't have to bring it up to me. Naomi's like, does this make sense for me? Let's talk about this. No, Naomi said it to her. When it mattered most... Ruth chose the better way. Again, typological of Christ. Because what do we see from him? When he was arrested, when his closest friends fled, when he was being beaten, he still chose to ensure that we received his love. When the cross was laid on his shoulders, when an excruciating, shameful death was ensured, he's literally walking there bearing his own cross. When the nails were being driven into his hands and into his feet, he still chose to remain on that cross. When our sins were placed on his shoulders, when the wrath of God was being poured out upon him for every lust, every hatred, every theft, every murder, every wickedness ever committed by his people, and he felt the shame and the guilt of those sins, a greater guilt and sin, shame that we could ever even possibly imagine, Multitude, everything we've ever done multiplied by tens of thousands. When it mattered most, he stayed faithful. He didn't abandon us. He didn't call legions of angels to come take him down. He didn't take the breath out of the man swinging the hammer. He didn't say, this is too much. These people, Father, that you've given me to save, they are too burdensome. Their sins are too many. He said, yes. I'm going to love my bride. 
I will not be driven away by the powers of death and hell. I will lay down my life. I will make atonement. I will remove their guilt. Now, when it matters most, when it's the most difficult to love, they will receive my loving kindness. And I'll close quickly with this. Christ has suffered for us, leaving us an example for us to follow in his steps. Ruth prefigured Christ's steps of suffering for us. And we read today of her actions, but we ultimately see Jesus. Amen, amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, when we see the outstanding loving kindness of your servants, we know that it is but a mere reflection of the incredible loyalty and loving kindness that you have shown to us. Your slowness to anger in the face of our sins astounds us. Your willingness to keep us as your people when you knew how much we would fail you, that is worthy of all praise, all honor, all devotion. Thank you for loving us so fiercely. Thank you for not being persuaded by our failures to release us from your hand. We pray for the grace to imitate this love. We pray we will be all the more determined to do it when it matters most, when it is the hardest. It is then that we can often grow weak. It is then that we tend to waver in our commitment to you, our commitment to our loved ones, our friends, our family, our church. So please, Father, send your spirit to reinforce in us this love. Reinforce us at those times. Strengthen us at those times. And through his work, your spirit, may your love unify our families and our church. We ask all this, Father, in the name of Jesus Christ, whose loving kindness is better than life. Amen.